This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and product design. I'm very happy to welcome to the show my next guests, Chip Malt and Jake Kalick, the founders of Made In. Thanks for coming in, guys. Thanks for having us, Carl. It's great to be here. All right. So let's see. I'm the first thing I want to point our listeners to your website and it's madeincookware.com. Madeincookware.com. So if you're someplace safe and in front of a web browser, you can check it out while while we're talking. Uh, let's see. Chip, why don't I start with you? Give us the elevator pitch for Made In. Sure. Um, first of all, thanks for having us. Um, so Jake and I actually grew up together. We were uh, friends from about five years old. So uh, wow. despite, I think, yeah, despite uh, a lot of recommendations in the entrepreneurial front about starting a company with your best friend, uh, we, we were, we bucked those and uh, we did just that. But um, we really, our story started in 2016. Uh, we saw that there was really no brand affinity in the cookware space and we couldn't think of any product that you used five, six, seven, eight times a day that you cared about everything that went into, um, that you just had no idea about any, the brand that you're using, um, it for, for that product. So for instance, like we talked about like shoes and clothing, like you wear those every day and you know exactly what brand you're putting on, but for cookware, I mean, you're using it for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. And most people we talked to had no idea what cookware brand they were using. Um, so Jake and I teamed up. We'd known each other forever. He can get into his background a little bit and, and the depth that uh, his family has in the space. But um, we really sought to uh, create the first uh, cookware brand and kitchen brand that um, people would have a brand affinity for and would look to uh, to help teach them what to do in the kitchen, to help tell them what products to buy, what they needed, um, and then on the content side, um, what to be cooking, how to cook it, um, et cetera. And, and that story started in 2016, and um, we just celebrated our first full year um, in September of 2018, um, and, and we're excited for what we built. All right, so I'll switch to you, Jake. Uh, you were you were called out as the domain expert here, but I guess uh, I'd, I, I happen to be a serious cook and I do care, but I guess I would ask, what, why do I want a relationship with my cookware? I mean, some of the, some people argue that the the best pan they have is, is, uh, is a cast iron skillet they got at a yard sale. So, so why is it that I want a relationship with my cookware? Yeah, so, I mean, there's definitely a time and place to use a cast iron skillet that you acquire at a yard sale. But the story we tell is that today's home cook could go to a Whole Foods market and spend $30 on a grass-fed steak. They'll spend a couple hours curating the perfect recipe on Bone App. They'll subscribe to a meal delivery system. Um, but they're kind of missing the final step of meal preparation, which is using the right tools to kind of maximize the recipe or dish they're cooking. Um, so for us, we were really sad to see home cooks spending $30 on a steak and then cooking it in a $10 nonstick IKEA pan. And for a reason, science, culinary, and health 
that's not the right way to finish and cook your dish. So we try to distill the education behind it and provide premium cookware tools because we believe better cookware makes better food. All right. So let's take that that steak and uh, tell me what the made-in product is like and, and why it's better. So in terms of the actual composition of our made-in stainless steel pan, for example, mm -hmm. um, we source all-American metals. So we go to Kentucky and Pennsylvania to find uh, stainless steel and aluminum, and we go through a process called cladding, where we take those materials and kind of stack them together and roll them through a cold press so that they turn into discs, and then we punch them into cookware. So there's reasons why we select, you know, uh, stainless steel and aluminum. Stainless steel for durability. Mm -hmm. You can bang it around your stovetop, and it's not going to dent and get hot spots. Um, it's very resistant to uh, metal contamination in terms of flavor, so you're not getting a metallic taste on your food. And then the aluminums we select are very good conductors of heat. So where stainless steel doesn't actually conduct heat very well, it holds heat. And the aluminum is used to heat the pan up, which the stainless steel then takes over the holding of the actual heat. So there really is a science behind each component of the cookware we uh, of the cookware put together, and and it helps for making the best dish, getting a high heat pan, holding the heat, and getting that perfect sear on the steak, for example. All right, so I'm I'm gonna push you a little bit on that. I'm gonna, let me go back to you, Chip, which is to say, you know, as a, anyone who's a serious cook will have heard that pitch from from um, Allclad or Cuisinart or Sur La Table, any number of, of companies make a, 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 a stainless steel clad uh, pan bonded to aluminum. What, what, why did you guys think you could do something different in this space? Sure. So I, mean, I think there's two answers to that. One is um, obviously a price point play. So uh, mm -hmm. we found out, and Jake's actually probably a better uh, person to direct this question to because he was running a wholesale family business, a third generation wholesale business, where he routinely had people come up to him and ask him, hey, I'm just moving into a new apartment with my boyfriend, girlfriend, or significant other. Um, I don't know anyone in this space, and I also don't want to pay $150 for an all-clad fry pan. Um, can you help me out on the wholesale side? So there was ah, price play, and yeah. part, of the, <clears throat> part of the reason why we went with the direct consumer, consumer movement um, the second piece of it is what we're really trying to do on the brand side of things. So mm -hmm. um, we see cooking and I mean, th think about today's environment with Uber Eats and Seamless Web and uh, a myriad of fast casuals. It's never been easier to not cook at home, yet people are cooking more and more at home every day. And we believe and we've tested this reason, but the reason why people do that is they actually enjoy the experience and the creativity behind it. There's an emotional connection to cooking. You're taking your grandma's third generation, fifth generation recipe, and it's been handed down through uh, generations, generations, and now you're making it for your significant other. It's a really cool experience. And our, our, um, our generation is drawn to experiences. And so what Jake and I are trying to do, both um, from the product side and from the brand side, is meld the emotional attachment of cooking to the products that we sell. Um, and that's what really goes into the name made in. Yeah. Um, the concept is that the products are made in the best places that those products sh should be made in. So for example, our stainless steel cladded cookware that Jake was just talking about, um, those, that's made in America and that's made with a third generation factory that um, has perfected the craftsmanship of making stainless steel cookware. Um, our knife that we just launched is made actually in the birthplace of the modern chef knife in Pierre's France. They've been making mm -hmm. that since the Middle Ages. 
Um, it's with a fifth generation knife maker out there that's unbelievably awesome. Um, so Jake and I travel the world um, and find the best places to make each individual individual product. And the reason we do that is because we want to put as much attention into the backstory of each one of these products as people do into what they make at home. Yeah. Okay. So I, I was pushing you on those points, but let me now underscore, I think, a couple of things you said, which I think are generalizable for our listeners. Uh, the first is is really the price story and the direct to consumer story and and I you know I just poked around a little bit on Amazon before the show and for a two quart saucepan the price range on Amazon for you know for a clad uh, stainless steel pan is anywhere from thirty dollars to two hundred bucks on all clad and so you're sort of in the middle of that space eighty dollars something like that. Um, and so it's about there is a value story in direct to consumer, and that can be a differentiator. And then the second thing that I think is also fairly common these days is these direct brand relationships. And so I, I totally buy that. And it seems that they're emerging a whole variety of quite successful companies that are bringing building direct brand relationships with their customers. So I think both of those can can make sense and and, you know, can be a, a sound competitive strategy. Um, let me now ask the question. So you, you, you go to the origin story. You guys uh, know, have known each other since you were five years old. But at what point did you say this is the thing we're doing? And then what did you do to validate the opportunity before you made the plunge? Let's see. Either one of you could take it. Whoever whoever feels most uh, equipped to answer that question. Jake, you Chip, want to take it? Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So I think Chip approached me. He had a lot of experience in the e-commerce consumer brand space and saw the opportunity in the kitchen space that hadn't really been um, you know, approached with, with, with a brand. So um, we immediately knew there was an opportunity in, in doing stainless clad cookware. It was something that everyone could use at their home. Um, it then took us about six months of nights and weekends, if you will. And this was in the summer of 16. Um, uh, a few months of nights and weekends to travel. We, we hit, I think, seven countries and met with at least 30 or 40 different man potential manufacturing partners to figure out who could actually manufacture this product to our specification with our raw materials um, the way we wanted. So one interesting thing about all of our products is we control the entire supply chain. So we wanted to maintain that, and we wanted to, to build a product to specification to, to how we thought it worked. So... Um, it took us six months to find the right manufacturing partner, and we did all of that without having a name, without having a brand, without really raising any capital. Once we were able to accomplish that, then we said, full speed ahead, let's, let's, let's raise some capital, let's build a brand around this supply chain. And it, that's never really wavered. We've always built our story around our supply chains. And when we were able to accomplish that with stainless steel cookware, we immediately began looking for, okay, where else can we manufacture? What else can we do? Because right now, if you walk into a Williams-Sonoma, you want to outfit your home with premium kitchen tools, you have to go to one person for your stainless clad. You have to go to one person for your chef knives. You have to go to one brand for your cast iron and porcelain enamel. Um, we want to be able to provide all of those verticals with one brand under that maiden umbrella, knowing that you're trusting us to go create these products, but if we can, you know, bring you in with stainless steel, we're going to educate you on why you should be using good cutlery, and this is the cutlery to buy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's sort of a, a horizontal slice across the different categories in cooking 
that you think you can do with the brand, uh, which I think is is pretty interesting idea. Uh, I want to I want to just circle back on the sourcing process a little bit. I mean, I'm guessing these factory the factories you visited, you walk through those factories, you're seeing all the sort of mid-size consumer brands are not all that they're making product for for a lot of different uh, companies. Um, how do you how do you get their attention as a startup, and what what do you have to do to persuade them to be interested in producing for you? Yeah, I'll take this one, Jake. Um, we actually started in an interesting approach, where instead of starting with the factories, we started with the raw material providers, um, which I think is unique. And because we knew the composition that we wanted to target, we wanted a premium five ply. Uh, basically, our strategy was to make a five-ply product and sell that at below the three-ply quality of all clad mm-hmm. um, to be a very good value play with what you mentioned earlier, Carl. Um, and so what we did was we went to the people who could produce this quality raw material, which is actually a pretty complicated uh, bonding process between mm-hmm. metals, and not everyone can do that. Um, and we told them, hey, we're going to buy a ton of metal from you guys over the next few years. Like, who would you recommend talking to that would be interested in working with us? And by doing that, it actually filtered out a ton of conversations that we didn't need to have. And, you know, they, those are kind of like everyone's buying from a certain amount of raw material providers. Um, What they did was where they were able to point us in the direction of maybe five or six factories that they thought were forward looking. Um, You know, this is an old industry. This is, um, you know, if you go to the houseware shows in Chicago, it's a lot of old people at that show. Um, And every year it gets a little bit younger and younger. Um, But we were able to connect with the factory that immediately, as we told them our vision, said we want to work with you guys because um, we may not be able to do it ourselves, but we understand that this is the direction that everyone's moving. And we would never have gotten there or we would not have gotten there as quickly if we had not gone and almost reversed the process and talked with the raw material providers first and asked them who to talk to. Yeah, it's really interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that about I would have guessed that the factory that that stamps, you know, that draws the material also does the bonding, but it sounds like it's a it's a more complex supply chain. Yeah. Yeah, it is a little more complex. I mean, we could have contracted a factory to that would have handled all kind of the front end work, the procurement of the raw materials and bonding, but for us, one of the huge value props of making the cookware in the United States is not just being able to get on a plane and see it being produced, but also, you know, being able to really control the supply chain. So we do really interesting partnerships with, you know, certain brands, for example, and they say, you know what, we want to have some red fry pans. Um, And we're able to do MOQs of 50 or 100 fry pans, whereas if we were importing this or working with a factory that was in charge of sourcing all the metal, they might say, no, 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 you've got to buy 5,000, yeah. you know, MOQs to do this. So so it's a better way for us to control our kind of our, our capital and, and the actual manufacturing process. Yeah. And just playing the professor, term of art, MOQ means minimum order quantity. So that's the minimum order you've got to place uh, with the factory. To yeah. do business, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So I, I, I wonder, the, the next question I want to ask, maybe I'll direct you at you, Chip, was, was, what did you what did you have to invest in terms of time and effort uh, before you could find out if this was something worth doing? So, uh, I, what's the right way to ask it? I guess I guess the way to ask it is how did you validate the opportunity and how big a swing 
did you have to take for you to have a reasonable answer to the question of whether this would work? Yes, I think there's two answers to this. One was looking at market trends. Obviously, um, the way we came to the initial idea, or the, the way I did um, and brought it to Jake, was looking at market trends and seeing what happened um, in the mattress space and then seeing what happened in um, the sheet space and looking at these big box stores getting kind of picked off one by one in vertical mm-hmm. um, and then seeing the kitchen space as a complete kind of uh, open opportunity. So. I mean, I think one was just uh, Chip, let me just hypothesis. let me just interrupt you there because I want to I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. That's this trend of direct to consumer in a vertical, uh, getting rid of the Correct. retailer essentially. Okay, got it. So that hadn't happened in yeah. kitchen yet, and you're saying, "Wow, that's going to happen." Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was clear, and, and we were. It's always dangerous, I think, to make yourself be the end consumer for everyone. But you know, we were going through. We were 28, 29 years old. We were going through the same process moving in and starting to invest in our home and buying a Casper mattress and buying Brooklyn and sheets yeah. and then getting to the kitchen and saying, there's literally no one doing this. Um, so I think one was like validating the white space opportunity from it. And then what we did and Jake and I did is we put out a massive survey um, to about 150 people that we thought represented the market um, for us. And it went from everything. The questionnaire went from everything from what do you have in your kitchen now and what brands um, do you love in the kitchen down to potential uh, demand opportunity. Would you purchase this from us at this price? A little bit of price elasticity play um, to really hone in on you know, where we needed to be. So when we did approach these manufacturers a year later, we knew that we had to have COGS at this level. We knew we had to have our price point in this zone um, to make this a viable business. So we did a ton of, um, I think, general kind of market study work as well as some consumer-based um, uh, surveying and and uh, and I guess forecasting on that front. All right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Chip Malt and Jake Kalick, who are co-founders of Made In, and their website is madeincookware.com. All right. So so Chip, you had you had this. Uh, vision, which you validated with some market research, but at some point you have to see if the dogs will eat the dog food. And so what kind of commitment did you have to make? Maybe I'll direct this to Jake. What kind of commitment did you have to make as a next step before you could really find out if the, if the market was there? Well, again, I think one of the benefits to working with kind of our U.S. supply chain on our, on our cookware line um, was that we were able to be a little more conservative with the bet we made. Um, mm-hmm. We were able to make products faster and make it with lower minimum order quantities, or the MOQs. Um, so we were able to test a few different things. Um, what we, we did have to do was convince you know, our manufacturing partners that we were worth kind of the time that they're investing in, in, yeah. in working with us. Um, we were able to um, not only convince them that we were worth the time, but um, try to negotiate some kind of exclusions in the category so that if we did prove the category that they wouldn't be going and working with a bunch of Me Too brands. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to do that, we had to set some, you know, what we considered lofty goals. So we did, um, we did negotiate kind of what those minimum runs would look like over 16 different parts um, and, and kind of made that launch line. Now the benefit to making cookware as opposed to um, other consumer brands are, you know, cookware never goes bad. 
Um, ah, it's not right. a seasonal product. You know, there aren't colors that work for fall that don't necessarily work for, for winter. Um, so we were a little more comfortable um, making that bet, knowing that we would have some allotted time to sell it um, and just hopefully it would sell as fast as possible. Yeah, so you would have wedding gifts the rest of your life if uh, if, it, if it didn't work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or we would melt it down and make jewelry or something. Yeah, something like that. Funny. Um, all right, let me go back to you, Chip. So, uh, what what did you did you did you raise any capital, or did you guys uh, do this on your own? So Jake and I self funded through, uh, I'd say, the first seven to nine months of the process, and that involves uh, receiving samples from multiple factories. Obviously, all the uh, time and effort and flying to different areas. Um, we really got it to kind of the MVP level. And at that point, we're able to bring it to the market and receive a seed round of funding. Um, so we, we raised uh, just before launch, um, just over a million dollars, uh, mostly from uh, institutional investment. Um, and that really let, let us, I mean, in the consumer space, like, we really valued having capital behind getting brand awareness out there, um, letting us accomplish some of our brand and marketing goals. Um, so that let us exp expand beyond just creating purchase orders, getting product in, warehousing it, but also um, achieve some of our front-end consumer and marketing uh, efforts. All right, so just to clarify, so you were able to raise a million dollars before you'd taken the first uh, order? Correct, correct. Yeah. And um, it, it was, I mean, we've, <laughs> we're, we're, I guess, fortunate for that um we've heard a lot of stories about um having to show some sort of traction yeah and obviously we, re we received for the one yes we got we, re we received 100 no's and it's a humbling experience yeah um but um you know we were lucky enough to find partners who believed in jake and my backstory um i coming from the e-commerce space his family history in the kitchen space um in the team that we built there um as well as we we developed a really great product and they were able to see that um from from day one so we were lucky to find a partner that uh, believed in the mission that we had. Yeah. Um, so uh, wh which one of you handles uh, supply chain? Is it Jake, the sourcing? Yes, I focus more so on the product side of things, but um, we've learned it's in our partnership. It's very collaborative on everything. But yeah. I, I do focus more on product and Chip is more on e-com. All right. So I'll focus on you, Jake. But this is actually a, a question related to the intersection between demand generation and demand fulfillment. So I went I went to order a pan and uh, you're mostly sold out. And that, of course, is a great problem to have unless it's December. Right. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the challenges of forecasting demand and getting supply and demand aligned. Yeah, I mean that, that's an interesting interesting time to come upon. You know, our two days of the year we've been sold out on a lot of products. I mean, I, I think there's kind of a third component at play too, which is an interesting case study. That is also the um, the art of dealing with factories that um, have legacy inventory management systems, and yeah. you have to help them learn fulfillment, especially on the e-com side. So. I mean, long story short, as you can imagine, we, we had um, a very important um, Black Friday, Cyber Monday week, and it was really our first full holiday season. Um, and we were able to really blow our forecasts for October and November out of the water. Um, and in November, we did what we had forecasted for November and December combined. So we sold out of a lot of product. And when everyone got back from Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and kind of the fog wore off, we realized that um, we needed to 
kind of take some product offline for a couple of days and allow our factory to get together with us and say, okay, what's our plan of attack in fulfilling all these orders? Um, and how can we um, allow everyone to catch their breath over two or three days and process what we have in back order and come up with a game plan to start fulfilling, you know, individual pieces bought or kits bought. So what we did was we took uh, items offline for two days, um, allowed everything, all the books to kind of get balanced. And we, we kind of released a certain set of SKUs that we're going to sell through holiday and, and really have a game plan for, for gearing up um, starting Q1 of next year. So um, the interesting thing is Chip and I have always taken the approach, even though we've raised institutional money when we launched, that we were going to be as lean as possible. We're a very lean team of six people um, that, that run this business together. And um, we don't try to over bet on our inventory. And um, we try to be very, very smart about what we forecast. So um, I think it's 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 interesting that you got to understand exactly, you know, what you get out of every dollar you spend in marketing. So we took a look at what we were going to spend marketing for the holiday season and what we were expecting to do in business as a result of that marketing spend and try to, you know, forecast what our demand would be. Um, and then, you know, organic PR articles hit or certain gift guide inclusions hit. Um, and then and then your forecasts are a little wonky. But um, if anything, we learned the lesson that now we have to, you know, prepare for the utmost success holiday season. And, and it's 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 a good problem to have. But yeah. you got to figure out quickly. Yeah. So I, I wasn't being critical. It's a sign of success. And I'm I it's awesome that you did it. And it's a yeah, it's just it's really hard to get that right. Um, all right, <laughs> guys. We're well, we're ourselves about it. Yeah, no, it's it's awesome. So anyway, guys, we're out of time. But thanks so much for making the time to join us. It's super interesting. Thank you, Carl. We appreciate being on. All right. So check them out. Madeincookware.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.